Hey everyone, and welcome back to RPG R&D. I am one of your hosts, Jess Geyer. I'm one half of Wannabe Games, and I make TTRPGs. And I'm here with my co-host, Craig Campbell. Hello, Craig. Hi, Jess. I'm Craig Campbell. I own Nerdburger Games, and I make games too. And I'm going to throw this out there real quick, just because not everybody listens to all the stuff at the end. But as of right now, the Capers uh, Cyberpunk Kickstarter is running, and Woo! we're recording this in advance, so I don't know how it's doing um, two days or so after it, it launches. But you know, fingers crossed, it's doing well. So if you want to see the next. Um, iteration kind of the next step in the progress of the capers universe go check that out on kickstarter and uh we have with us here today uh repeat guest back again hey ben hello it's me ben sandfelder <laughs> hello. hello thank you for coming on, uh, on the show again thank yeah you. thank you it's always a ton of fun tell us something about yourself to introduce yes. yourself so uh this no spoilers, but uh, this week I'm going to get to talk about the other half of my skill set, the uh, indie game development in the digital game world and how one foot in tabletop and one foot in digital games, how those two have kind of influenced each other for me. Yeah. Today we're talking about video games, video games giving us insight into our tabletop gaming creation. So Ben, Ben, what's your experience doing digital games? So that's actually what I went to college for. Um, my degree is interactive design and game development. The uh, my my specialty within that was always uh, narrative design, which is how do you use mechanics as a storytelling medium, and it also involves a lot of like writing interactive fiction, which you know went hand in hand with the fact that I was already a giant D and D nerd. Uh, <laughs> I got into other tabletop RPGs around college, I think, but. Uh, so as far as my digital game development experience, uh, most of my experience has been in the Unity game engine. And one of the hobbies I picked up at the very beginning of the pandemic was I started learning Unreal Engine just in time for <laughs> the, new, the new edition to come out. So <laughs> yeah, I finally started getting the hang of everything and then it all changed, which is which is the game industry. So that is the game industry, but I feel like it's definitely more so for video games because you have to learn like an actual like coding language. Yeah. You have to like learn actual like finite skills. Whereas like with tabletop games, you can kind of like you can continue to use really old stuff and it's still going to work like nothing's you're not going to have like flash is never going to stop. Like, you know, all of those things that people, that people who design digital games can get used to and take for granted, even um, that will soon become obsolete. <laughs> um, I miss flash. Like, I, I was the age of the huge rush of online indie game developers getting started in flash. And then Adobe got rid of it. Yeah, yeah. Entire I used to play genre a lot. of games just erased. It's very um I have a lot of um I I I have a lot of mean and angry things I could say about Adobe. I guess I will hold my tongue. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, I am I'm curious. So uh do you let's like jump into this topic, like what what is the same about designing for video games as for tabletop games? And what is like a, what's, what are the major similarities and differences, I guess, is my question. So in my opinion, 
the major sim the most major similarity is actually the design uh when it comes to all of the number crunching that's going to be the same whether it's tabletop or digital like how much health does the player have how much damage should this thing do uh where you can very quickly get into trouble with digital games is that since a computer is doing all of the work you can get much bigger numbers than you can in tabletop uh, mm -hmm. it's not a big deal for an enemy to have ten thousand hit points in a video game if that happens in a tabletop game the gm is going to curse your name uh and <laughs> yeah. burn the rule book you gave them so <laughs> you can probably do a lot more like complex math stuff too you don't have to worry about adding and subtracting in your head the computer is going to do it for you yes uh that is one of the other things um a good example of this is uh like percentage-based damage reduction that is a really good example of a really common video game mechanic that it would be an absolute nightmare in tabletop rpgs yeah yeah <laughs> all right everybody and every time you take damage you have to multiply by a decimal yeah <laughs> and round have... up or round down depending on the rule set yeah that's right uh this week we're gonna be trying out a new system i need everyone to get their character sheet their dice and their calculator out <laughs> if i ever had to break out a calculator for a game i'd be like i guess we're gonna house rule this and yeah. not do the math actually <laughs> i know that there are a lot of games out there that are like really complex in the math but it's nothing that someone shouldn't be able to do at the table like pretty quickly mm -hmm. But um, there's another there's another video game thing that I find frustrating in a video game, but I find interesting in like a tabletop game. We actually talked about it uh, on our last week's episode, which is like inventory and ammo and stuff like that. So much easier. Like I feel like track and like as a player and I'm assuming it's not like super hard to make sure that it's tracked in a video game and can be a pain in the butt for a tabletop game uh so like there's all these um little mechanics that d are shared like like i'm thinking D D. technically you're supposed to keep track of your arrows or whatever um but what if you lose track well the computer is right. going to keep track for you in a video game you have to actually do that work uh <laughs> and yeah. uh as a as a, a gamer like on tabletop um I mentioned this before we started. I was very interested in talking about this topic because I've been playing Baldur's Gate, uh, Baldur Baldur's Gate 3. And I don't want to spoil anything about the story. I just want to talk about the mechanics. I have like some things to say about it. Uh, <laughs> and I think it's very interesting because it is it's Dungeons and Dragons in a video game. And it's the fifth edition rules, but in a video game. Um, and I've I played the other larian studios get like uh divinity original sin i loved that i thought it was it was fun it was cool it used the mechanics very well but it wasn't D, &D. whereas playing baldur's gate 3 i have not been having fun and i have not been having fun for a couple reasons um with uh -oh. the mechanics uh number one <laughs> is that uh the your your computer is your GM, right? For for Baldur's Gate three, they are running through this with you. And yeah, you could save scum. Save scumming is when you save and go back because you didn't get an outcome that you liked, um, which I do in Baldur's Gate three all the time because you have to, uh, because your computer GM is ruthless and does not care if you get a cool mm -hmm. outcome or a bad outcome. There is no human there with empathy for you, making sure that the story is 
satisfying to you in any meaningful way. Not, I'm not saying that it's never been satisfying for me playing Baldur's Gate 3, but the computer is not there to like be like, are you sure? Or to answer <laughs> extra questions for you or to do any of the things that a human would do for you. And it really makes me think about like people are talking about, oh, artificial intelligence is going to like take over and and you can have your AI be your GM. No, it's not right now. It's not yeah. going to because that <laughs> sucks. That sucks so bad. Um, I'm I wonder like like that's a lesson I've I've certainly learned as a GM, not necessarily as a designer, but like that human element of like yeah, the dice do say this, but we have to make we have to make failure and success a little less binary there has to be like your failures have to be satisfying and there have mm -hmm. to be ways around it that are not written down beforehand um because when when it is like that you're i don't know it sucks i i think yeah. that sucks so bad <laughs> so no there was a it's um funny that you bring up the divinity games because when my friend convinced me to try those uh the first thing i said is wow this is the closest i've gotten to a digital adaptation of D D." Yeah. But it's like playing with the most ruthless dungeon master ever because, uh, yeah, the, the computer cannot give you the like, okay, are you sure you want to do that kind of yeah. thing, like you, just like you were saying. But the other thing, you know, you, you touched on save scumming. There was a great article about this saying all of the nonsense traps in Baldur's Gate 3 that absolutely wreck your party in two seconds you would never do that in a tabletop game because it would be the most unsatisfying thing ever if you just TPK'd because one player flipped a switch and accidentally triggered the chain explosions. Oh, that's not true. Yeah. Imagine. That has been done I, I, many, many times in early iterations of D&D. &D. Please oh, yeah. play Tomb of Horrors. Yes. Where you okay. literally just, you touch a thing in a, in a statue, in a, in a, there's like a, a sculptural thing on a wall and you touch the black thing in it and that's it sphere of annihilation you're dead sorry yep. spoilers for a a module <laughs> that's like 35 years old yeah. um but I mean, yeah the difference, it's, the difference but, there but it's, is it's a different it's a different day and age of like what the expectations are for these types of games um and there's things that we can um see as rpg designers that are like that's not the best thing to necessarily have in the types of games i want to make there certainly are people there you know there are old osr games that are just like that's all it's all about like it, the, the dice fall where they may but a lot of what we design um the three of us and others um, who are on the show a lot um you know don't necessarily go down that road so it's like it's it's kind of interesting to see each of you have this reminder of like oh yeah that type of a game exists like because right. you don't you don't design those games like you don't design a game that's like ruthless yeah. um, well, the, the difference the difference with the the tomb of annihilation thing though is you are not playing tomb of no one is going out there and playing tomb of annihilation with a bunch of characters that they have grown up with and like have been playing for a long time no one's gonna go in there and do that you would riot the the game the gamers at your table would write and it's funny that you bring this up because there's like a whole thread on twitter right now about tomb of annihilation and <laughs> tomb of horrors and, or tomb of tomb of horrors not tomb of, I, I, it's a sphere of annihilation in the tomb of horrors yeah yeah um, we know what you're it, talking about yeah. though <laughs> it's yeah whatever it is, it is a tomb of annihilation <laughs> um but there's a whole there's a whole thread on this but you you're not going to come in there with a character that you've had and gone through with and then have everybody die 
and that's the end of your story unless I mean I guess like some people would like that but you're not going to go in there with that surprise and when you're playing Baldur's Gate 3 you have this character that you've started with from the beginning of the game and you have these NPCs that you started out with the beginning of the game and you're hoping that you can have this satisfying story arc I literally had one of my NPCs in a cutscene explode they exploded (laughs) why And this is an important NPC, like no spoilers, but it's an important NPC. And I had no choice in the matter of their explosion. And then also their, their blood and guts is just stuck in my camp and this in the camp forever. It like, it no. with us. it's so funny. Um, but like that, that's what I mean about like, we gotta have some, some sort of like, you have to like come into a tabletop game. Like you, you're, you're, you're knowing what you're going to get into you're consenting to what you're going to get into. Um, and I, I think all those things are important. Yeah, uh, it speaks to the social contract that you get yeah. into when you play a particular game. And even if, even when you play a particular game, there's, you know, usually some sort of expectation about how the game is designed and how it plays. Um, and then there, you know, even further deviation from the stated um, expectation can be done by like, the GM deciding to run it a certain way or the players wanting to see it go a certain direction or, you know, coming up with, uh, you know, tweaks and house rules and, and things that you bring up in session zero and so forth. It's, uh, it's, 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 it's a great, uh, a great comparison that the two of you are bringing up um, between like what, you know, some of these uh, computer video game, you know, com- com- what some of these computer games do <laughs> on my your age, Nintendo, on, on your <laughs> Nintendo system um, versus what, uh, you know, what, what role-playing games are capable of um, when they're um, not necessarily designed to be just grinders. Mm-hmm. And uh, one thing touching on Baldur's Gate 3 a little bit, uh, a little bit more, I guess, um, one thing the game actually really surprised me with is because they programmed in so many different interactions and so many different ways to engage with a lot of the mechanics, um, there usually is a way around everything if you do if you do have like a failed role. Uh, there was a point in Act Two that I'm going to be very vague about because spoilers, where a character gets a, a character got critted like five times in the first round of combat and then captured and it caused a catastrophic chain reaction of things to happen with like a cutscene and everything and i was like oh okay this is one of those video game fights that you can't possibly win this is i know what you're talking about supposed to go yeah um i restarted it until i yeah. got the ending i uh, wanted and then out, yeah no and then out of curiosity i googled but i just to make sure i was like hey is this supposed to happen and it was like no no this is totally avoidable and i'm like oh what but there was a cutscene. Mm-hmm. so yeah um, yeah oh, and <laughs> but then you can have that happen later um yeah. i realized with the, uh the character i was playing uh mm-hmm. you can have it happen later too Oh no! <laughs> things a certain way and you don't know because they don't tell you that it's gonna happen yeah um, and, and, yeah and so, i mean i guess that's what happens when you mess with with dark gods and stuff like that but whatever um yeah. <laughs> it's i i i 
That is one thing about video games that I do enjoy, though, is that you can kind of rewind in a way that mm-hmm. is like you're playing. You can play by yourself in a video game. So it's OK if you like, oh, I didn't like that. Let's try again. Um, And oh, I didn't like that the second time either. I'm going to keep trying again until I win. Um, You can do that with a video game because video games already set you up with this idea that you're supposed to win. But if I were sitting at a table and I was going in clear-eyed about the consequences of what could happen, the narrative is set up, um, I'm much more satisfied losing and having something bad happen to me when I'm sitting down at a at a at a tabletop game than I am with a video game. Um, I mean, I I did some save scamming in Divinity too, although I was much less angry when something bad happened or like a consequence, a narrative consequence happened to me in that game than I was in Baldur's Gate because when I'm coming in with Baldur's Gate, I'm coming in with a lot of the expectations I'm carrying over from my tabletop gaming. Whereas with Divinity, I was much more satisfied being, oh, it's a video game. I'm going to treat it like a video game. Right. Yeah. And and the um, part of the thing there uh shoot i just completely lost my train of thought (laughs) (laughs) this happens sometimes um yeah no okay no it's making informed decisions you know usually in a tabletop game uh the gm will make it pretty clear like actually i think in um this is in like forged in the dark games i think this is actually just part of the core mechanic but like whenever you roll for something in like blades in the dark or something it's a conversation with the gm where you're like okay this is what happens if you succeed and this is what happens if you fail do you want to do it this way or do you want to try something different uh so when you go into that dice roll you have you're making an informed decision about what you're doing and what the consequences could be in a lot of video games they have the luxury of you can save scum but a lot of times, especially arcade games, arcade games are just notorious for this. They will throw like a gotcha thing at you where like you have to, you know, put in two more quarters and then try again from the beginning. Like, sure. Well, yeah. you know, arcade games are microtransactions. Yeah. You know, for, for, for the home, the home console game, you paid the money. The game's yeah. yours. Like you'll they'll they'll give you the way to like do it over and over and over again until you get through it. And it's interesting though, because as a you know, in RPG design, you can you can do that sort of thing where you have um you could build into a system where like the the sort of equivalent of what Jess was talking about, which is like you have to try it multiple times until you kind of get the outcome that you want or a successful outcome or something that's going to push the story in the direction that everybody's satisfied with or whatever, where you could literally have a system that's built around the idea of like, well, you make your check and yet that didn't work. And so like, there's like some little hindrance, some little something that comes along, but then you get a chance to try it again, you know? Um, uh, and maybe you approach it from a different angle and you try it with a different skill or you try it a different t- at a different time or <clears throat> with a different NPC or whatever. And so those are those are things that you can kind of as an RPG designer learn from the idea that video games allow you to, you know, iterate and do things over and over until you kind of get the thing the way you want it. I think that could be really fun if you um, also had something as a GM like, yeah, you can keep trying this over and over until you do get the, the ending you want. But all of the negative things that happen in the game are like it would be a really fun like game about predestiny. 
like all the bad things that happen aren't gonna happen there's nothing you can do to stop them like i'm thinking of playing um like when you play a first person shooter like when i played halo for the first time there is no stopping the flood from you know doing what the flood does like you there's no there's no stopping the the main major story points they are oh what's the term they use in enter the spider-verse into the spider-verse um they're canon events you cannot change them uh and i think that that could be a really interesting um concept to play with any any uh any video game designers slash tabletop game designers out there ben (laughs) (laughs) Uh, ben i'm also curious um when I played, when I play video games, I'm much more tactical than I am. Mm-hmm. Like in combat situations, I enjoy combat a lot more in a video game than I do in a tabletop game, where I'm much less um, tactical. I, I, what what is it about video games that makes us do that? <laughs> what, what? Be a psychologist. What? Why am I like this? <laughs> you know, uh, that is an interesting question because I'm actually the other way around. And I think it's because of the stakes. Like in a tabletop game, I'm super crunchy, tactical, power gamer, all that kind of stuff. Uh, in a video game, um, first, like first person shooters specifically, I really enjoy them. I don't think I'm especially great at them. Uh, my role on my team with some old high school friends is bait. Uh, <laughs> I want amble around lost. The enemies shoot at me. And then my friends see where they are and kill them. Uh, and if I'm really lucky, maybe I'll land a few hits first. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, when I'm playing video games, I tend to be a lot more reckless I, than I am in tabletop games. So it's a fun sort of opposite thing there. As far as where that comes from, you know, two different kind. I'm, I'm of like two different minds here because on one hand, in video games, uh, because like, especially with first person shooters, games tend to be a bit more immersive than tabletop because uh, you know, you're seeing things from the character's perspective and the stuff is happening in real time. In tabletop games, there's like an extra degree of separation from it, which for some players makes it easier to make like the objective tactical decisions. Um, while if you're a player like me, uh, it means it it's harder to hold your attention. And so you want to make things happen faster. So you act a little bit more recklessly and you're like, no, nah, we don't have to plan. We don't have to make a plan. Let's not waste all this time planning. Let's just go and move the story along. So I think, and, and you know, there's also the, the kind of like what Craig was talking about earlier, the, the social contract piece of it too. If you're playing a single player video game, you can take as long as you want on your turn. Mm-hmm. If you're playing in a tabletop RPG and you spend 10 minutes deliberating about which spell you're going to cast, everyone else at the table is going to get a little annoyed, probably. Um, That's That was what immediately came to mind for me was um, for people who prefer the tactical side of the video game, it's because you don't have to wait your turn. Mm-hmm. You're always doing something, whereas like in a tactical role-playing game you could potentially end up sitting around a good chunk of time if everybody gets super tactical if you've got a big table i played robotech once 
good lord <laughs> years ago like you had and you're in your mech and you've got like all these different weapons and all these different missiles and people are keeping track of how many missiles of each type that they have because this is very important in robotech at the time and so there was a lot of like you know having people have them to like like okay i'm firing this and doing this and, da, 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 and they had to like adjust their character sheet and make sure that like you know everything was good and then like next turn and it like, took forever to get around to you and yeah, that drove me nuts. And then from a video game perspective, I don't play a lot of video games now, but I played like some of the early Final Fantasy stuff. And the I love the exploration stuff when you're wandering on the map fine and stuff. But whenever you had a fight, it just dragged because you had to pick your you had your four little characters and you had to pick each one and tell them what they were going to go do. And your little guy would march forward with the sword and go ching ching and a little point would fly and a person would shoot a firebolt and you take your turns and then you would sit there while all the monsters marched across the little screen or shot their magic and did their little thing. And you were just probably going to do like the same thing again on your next turn. So it right. wasn't like you were thinking too much. It was just, you were waiting. Um, and because it was emulating war games and yeah. tabletop role-playing games, it's like, you get your turn, you get your turn. And that's the computing power could only handle that. Right. Um, but yeah, I, I get it, Jess. I totally get it. Like, um, I, I've, I've lost my way. I, on, on, I've, I've fallen away from, uh, highly tactical tabletop games because I'd much rather have something that just kind of you know keeps yeah. keeps popping. I also have. I probably would really enjoy these video games if I Maybe, played them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, my um my review of uh, Pathfinder Kingmaker when it came out was I have never enjoyed Pathfinder so much as when the computer is handling all of the rules for me. Uh, <laughs> like I love Pathfinder. I hate making characters for Pathfinder. I hate preparing Pathfinder as a GM. And so getting to play that system and enjoy everything I like about the system, but not have to worry about any of the like, okay, wait a minute, what page was that rule on? Like, wait a minute, is that a plus one or a plus two bonus from this feat? Like having the computer handle all of that for me was the peak pathfinder experience in my <laughs> <opinion>. <laughs> sorry paizo i mean there there is a lot of stuff that i wish i could do like as a gm with or as a designer with my games that i have found fun in video games and it's things that are like the environmental impacts of like oh there's there's water on the ground and if you electrify it it will be electrified in this certain area or like, ooh, there's a there's a barrel full of oil. <laughs> if you shoot it, it will explode. Like I like those kinds of things, but it's a lot to like keep track of in your head as a GM. Yeah. And the more like stuff you put on the battlefield, the the more you have to keep track of, the more enemies you have, the more you have to keep track of. Um I yeah, I <laughs> I like I loved playing my virtual tabletops because of that exactly because of that I didn't have to do anything other than click select my move and go the, the computing power has increased exponentially over the years um, for video games and the computing power of our brains for tabletop role-playing games has only increased slightly and that's only be it only comes with us becoming more familiar with a game that's the only thing like you actually have to just play the game more and more and more in order to become slightly faster at dealing with that sort of stuff <laughs> well and the mechanics are <laughs> supposed to be there to help you make a decision about what will happen or should happen like oh yeah they fall 
here's our fall mechanics. And if you fall this many feet, you take this many damage, divide whatever it is. At some point that becomes a little unwieldy. And I think, I think that as video games do become much more responsive and faster and, and like, like, like these games with all these intricate storylines and character interactions that really do simulate conversations you're having with people. Um, we as tabletop game designers have to be, we have to lean more into that human aspect and be like, oh, well, we don't necessarily need this mechanic. The GM can figure this out or we can negotiate it at the table and kind of lean into that more. Lean into the, oh, it doesn't have to be exactly perfectly mathematically random. We can have bias in our mechanic resolutions. Yeah, the uh, that's actually something I was kind of hoping we'd get to touch on a little bit. And um, in game development, both sides, tabletop and digital, there's this sort of uh, spectrum of, I, I like calling it like simulationist design versus abstract design. Simulationist design, and, and a really good example of this is actually like Pathfinder versus a Powered by the Apocalypse game. Uh, in a simulationist game, there have to be rules for everything. Um, there need to be consistent systems that you can use to do anything in the game. And if the thing you are trying to do is not defined by the game's rules, then you can't do it. A lot of video games from a tabletop designer perspective have to be simulationist because if the program does not know what to do, then your game crashes. Uh, <laughs> everything has to be scripted. Um, right. But... On the other end, you know, in abstract game design, uh, yeah, you can you can have those sorts of conversations about like, well, hey, how do we want to handle this? Um, it is more of a dialogue than a sequence or a procedure, I guess would be the right word for it. Mm -hmm. um, and what's been really kind of interesting about uh, seeing how like see, seeing how technology is sort of changing games, like especially with stuff like, I don't want to get into AI, but like I've seen people like put AI in Skyrim and it's like, okay, now now the character can parrot lines from chat GPT or whatever. And it's like, yeah, okay. Uh, at the end of the day, you're still using a simulationist algorithm that's searching through stuff and following rules and obeying procedures. You're still not going to get that human element that like a human game master is going to be able to provide but at the same time if you want tactical crunchy mechanics and everything all of the new complex shiny video games are right there mm -hmm. and you don't really need that in your tabletop rpgs and war in war games and stuff anymore it just kind of slows things down and we don't really have the attention span for that anymore <laughs> yeah i i 100 agree like it <laughs> There is, I like the tactile nature of when I play like a minis game. I do like the tactile nature of moving stuff around on a board. But if I could figure out a way, if someone could figure out a way, because it's not going to be me, to combine the computer game with also I have these minis in my hands. Like, let me, I want a cool future where I have like a table that's also a computer and like the little minis are like, you know, mm -hmm. like your amiibos from Nintendo or whatever. I think that would be really fun. It would take out all the stuff I actually don't like about minis games, which is all the math and the crunch 
um, and just let me move my cool little figures around the board and make them shoot at each other. I think that would be really fun. Yeah. Um, I guess what I what I, I guess what I want is I want the game from Star Wars. That oh C-3PO. yeah, the chess game. Yeah. 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 I I guess that's what I want actually. <laughs> um. Now that I'm thinking about it, I don't necessarily want that with my um. I mean, part of the joy of having the tabletop role-playing games, especially, is the joy of sitting around with people who y- you don't know how that they're how they're going to interact in their characters. You don't know how the GM's going to interact. You don't know how you're going to interact and react. And uh, until we get an artificial intelligence that can pass the Turing and the Lovelace tests, it's we're not gonna <laughs> we're not gonna have that. Um, and uh, I, I don't know if that will ever uh, ever be a possibility. I don't know. I'm not an artificial intelligence expert. I, um, I do have a little bit of speculation there. Um, I think that might actually be where D&D is trying to go. Fantasy Flight's uh, X-Wing Miniatures game did something really interesting with its second edition where uh, none of the printed materials have like point costs on them. Uh, oh. So pretty much because the big issue in the first edition was power creep. Um, And so what they did in the second edition is none of the physical media has like point costs on it. You use an app to build your list. And because the app is digital, uh, if the meta changes and this one card from two seasons ago becomes overpowered, uh, they can just patch it and change the point cost. And uh, they don't have to make a new edition or invent a mechanic to counter that mechanic in the next season like um they're able to just fix their game like that and i think that's where they're trying to go with one D. they're like we're gonna keep pushing people towards D beyond and towards these like you know digital materials so that uh instead of you know reprinting the books every five years uh, we can just have like a digital living rule set that we can ship a Theseus into a new edition without anyone <laughs> noticing. Very interesting. Yeah, I mean, that wouldn't surprise me at all. I, I, and I, you know, it could work. It could work for certain kinds of games. I don't think it could work for every every kind of game. And it doesn't need you know? to. No. So. I I do agree. It would be that's fine to me. It would be cool to have a mini game, like a miniatures game that uh, your character sheet is on is like a phone app or something, and then you lose out on dice though. So maybe not. I don't know. It's hard. <laughs> you know, like like yeah. you said, like the the tactile and the face to face interaction. Mm-hmm. I don't think that that's ever gonna go away because um, um, we are social creatures um, and. I it would it would take a very long time for that kind of thing to go away, uh, but I also I play a lot of video games. I I do really enjoy it, um, and I get a lot of my ideas for games from playing video games too. Oh yeah, we, we were just having a conversation about this on the IGDN Discord too. Um, uh, Matt Orr, who is also a, a longtime guest on our uh, podcast as well, was talking about the game Unpacking, which is a game of literally just unpacking boxes um and slowly kind of you kind of discover a story it's very subtle it's very it's very very interesting game um and uh like how that could be incorporated into an rpg i think that there's a lot you can get out of if you um play different mediums of games um not just video games too like like go play a war game go play a card game or a board game yeah. 
you know board games too speaking of yeah. like i've played a lot of board games that really like gamify in the meaning of like you're trying to win a scenario um that gamify a lot of the elements from tabletop role-playing games um i'm thinking of like uh the game descent um i'm thinking of like uh like the like the Star Wars tactical board games, like you have characters you're playing kind of, um, but you're not like the role playing is like out the board. You're just playing like a scenario module, which reminds me a lot of how I used to play fourth edition. Like basically mm -hmm. that's all I would yeah. do in fourth edition is kind of play like a board game essentially on a map. Um, yeah. I think that if you explore a lot, a lot of different kinds of games, you're going to be a better game designer just in general, even if the game sucks. Uh, can can confirm as a game designer who dabbles in every game medium. Uh, <laughs> yes, correct. Uh, playing different kinds of games does make you a better game designer. It's fantastic. Yeah, I think every digital game developer needs to try tabletop RPGs and every tabletop RPG player needs to play like a first person shooter or something like <laughs> Yeah, okay, sit, we're going to sit you down in front of Call of Duty and you're going to understand like why this is the most played game on Xbox <laughs> ever. Like, there's a reason for it and it's good design. And yeah. you'll learn why safety tools are important in your game yes. after, after <laughs> you sure being in will. a Call of Duty lobby. <laughs> yeah, I, um, I play with game chat muted and it is That's a much smart. more enjoyable experience. I uh I guess like before we before we wrap up this particular topic, listeners, you might have noticed that we are uh, we have diverged a little bit from our regular uh our regular format of this podcast. But uh, before we kind of wrap up this little segment, uh, do we have any final thoughts, additions, things that you wish you had a chance to say? Uh, I I I think I do. Yeah. So um, if I just had to pick like. Okay, these are three video games that you need to play mm. to make your tabletop RPGs better. The Dark Souls games for level design and dungeon design, especially mega dungeon design, if that's your thing. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the way those games use like uh, backtracking and I, not quite puzzles, but sort of like, oh, you know, you do this and it opens up this. Like the way those games design their maps incredible like incredible level design you want puzzles for your tabletop rpg pillage the zelda games yes not all of them necessarily work in a turn-based tabletop medium but the general general structure works just fine and boss fights especially like yeah just mmos look at mmos probably like, you know, Guild Wars 2 and Final Fantasy 14 always have like, okay, there's a pattern to the boss and you got to learn the pattern to beat the raid. Um, that is something you can very easily port into tabletop with lair actions and legendary actions and D&D. Other game systems, you can just make it a mechanic. So yeah, Souls games, Zelda games, MMOs is what <laughs> I would recommend. I, I agree with you. I also think that there are a lot of MMOs out there. And um, I mean, even Legend of the New Legend of Zelda's Breath of the Wild and Tears of the Kingdom with their quest systems 
Um, any game with a quest system, I feel like, gives you a really good idea of how to incorporate, like, what does this world look like and what do all these people want in these different areas and how do they relate with each other? Uh, I think that that's a really good thing to look into as a GM, especially. Craig? You got um, nothing in particular. Um, I have played first person shooters, though. I played like a crap ton of uh, <laughs> Left for Dead like a decade oh, ago. Nice. So that's <laughs> but that's because I'm a horror person. So um, I... <laughs> I just I don't I don't play a lot. A lot of video games recently. You I've had my period. I've uh, had I've had uh, periods where I've been very much into it. You should check out Dead by Daylight. It is a 4v1 game based on every slasher you have ever seen. <laughs> yeah uh i remember like one of my very earliest video game memories i a lot of my earlier memories are me playing video games which is very funny but uh my dad was playing this game called return to castle wolfenstein and i had never played any like the actual wolfenstein games and but i had played like oh this was this is like the call of duty games or the middle of honor games i'd played like the you know your first person world war ii world war one games uh, mostly World War Two. So I was playing Return to Castle Wolfenstein, and I was like, "Oh, this is like a you know whatever I'm you know out there uh, playing a war game, and suddenly zombies." That was the <laughs> life. That was a life changing experience for me. That genre flip. Ooh, <laughs> I've. It wasn't even that big of a genre flip. I was just a child and didn't understand that it was leading up to this horror game. Essentially, um, that was a scary, terrifying moment for me. I I did have to turn off the game and come back to it later uh <laughs> um i don't know what reminded me of that um but speaking of rambling stories we do have another segment <laughs> that we're gonna talk about. um our 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 second segment um which is actually more of our gm segment than the previous one is uh we're gonna share some some stories from our from gming and lessons that it has taught us about being a, a gm and uh, I'm very excited to hear some some stories. I'm not a great storyteller. I'm I am much more of a I'm gonna be that old person on a rocking chair telling the same story for 50 minutes, and I haven't gotten to a point yet. <laughs> <laughs> Who would like to start with their GM story? Um. Well, I've I think I've told this or at least a, referred to it previously on the podcast but that doesn't mean that any of you remember that or uh any of you listeners have heard that episode um but i i was running a deadlands game many 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 years ago and deadlands is my favorite game to this day um i'm a big fan of the old west and you know i, I love campy stuff and horror is fun and we were we, we'd been playing for about a year with the same group we we're coming up on halloween so i was like we'll do a special a special game for halloween i went out and i bought um, a bunch of long like dinner candles, tapered candles, you know, the big tall ones. And I tested them to see how long they take to burn down. It's like I can make sure it doesn't burn down before a game session is over. And we uh, we all got together. We set, got to, got to playing. Everybody got one candle. I got two just so because I had, you know, notes and stuff laid out. <clears throat> and um, the group bedded down, you know, for the night at the campfire. And then they were awoken in the middle of the night by somebody coming in saying, hey, we you know, we need your, we need help. There's people being killed in our little town. And it basically turns into a vampire story. But what I had set up with everybody was this candle is your character's life force. If this candle goes out, if your candle goes out, your character dies 
right then, right there, and I'm not kidding. They die. No dice rolls, no chip spends, they die. And the game was set up in such a way that it was built like they had to solve the problem that night. Like they had to find the vampire and deal with it that night because there was a curse. And if another person got <laughs> killed, blah, blah, blah. So they didn't have a lot of time. We had to do it all in one game session. And, you know, time was of the essence. And every time anybody got up to use the bathroom or get a drink or like shuffled their paper around or passed a book, like the wind would cause candles to flicker and everybody flipped out. People were covering the candles with their hands, making sure to like lean their head away into the shadows mm. when they spoke so that they weren't speaking and breathing into the candle. And it was a great moment. And then we got to the end and they solved it and they killed the vampire and everything. And I said, okay, now your characters go to get a little bit of sleep before the night is over. And I had pre-prepared cards um, and all of them said the same thing except for one. Um, one of all of them said, wait a few seconds, blow out your candle and scream. And one of them said, do nothing, just wait. And I shuffled them and I handed them out. And all the people who got the blow out your candle thing waited and the candle went out, candle went out, people screamed. And as they were doing that, I'm blowing up my candles. And we left with one player sitting there with her face behind her candle and just <laughs> waiting. And I got up and I went to bed. <laughs> I left the room. Um, <laughs> and, uh, I, I got the whole run down from everybody the next day and everything. And there was like one of the, you know, the coolest, most interesting, like really weird out there kind of gaming experiences any of them um, had dealt with. I told them that, you know, since you got to the end of the everything and I made you blow out your candle, your character didn't die. Now, lest you are worried about it, if their character had died in Deadlands, you can come back as Harrowed, which makes you undead and like they weren't going to lose their character. So I wasn't dicking them over. But um, I did that with a group of people that I knew that I was friends with. And it taught me very much that you can get away with a lot. You can do a lot of strange things. You can go down weird paths. You can try odd um, approaches to things if your players trust you. And that transfers over to GMing to me for me to this day. And it it leans into uh, game design as well. Like you can, if you can establish a level of trust with the reader and and they trust you and you trust them to fill in gaps. Like you trust that you don't necessarily have to write the rule for everything because you can trust the reader um, and they can trust you to give enough information to make an interesting game and be, be playable and everything. But you can also trust them to, um, to, to fill in where you're not necessarily specifying absolutely everything. Um, and that's become something that I, I think about quite a bit, quite a bit when it comes to jamming and design. So um gm's out there if you want to steal that idea go for it because i got it off the internet anyway the, the candle thing incredible <laughs> yeah I, I love that i i my story i've been thinking about like what i was going to say for mine um and there are a lot of like jamming moments i really actually enjoyed playing in um but this one is maybe not necessarily uh, about something cool i did but about a move I learned that I have the power to make. Um, so oh, way back when, this is like in 2015, 2016, maybe, uh, I was a GM for the Adventurers League. I was a D DM, in fact, because it was Dungeons & Dragons for the Adventurers League at uh, my local game store. 
what that meant was I got like a lot of different players like on different days, but there were a couple of regulars and they were mostly like children. They were mostly like like 10 and up, um, like younger teens to like actual kids. And I think this happened because like parents saw me. I am an I am you know, I look like I can be trusted with children and uh, they would like leave their kids and they would play the game. Like you, maybe you don't get a chance to play with your, your children very often. Um, And one of our game sessions, there was this kid there and he um, was being that guy. Uh, he, he was running through, kicking open doors, always trying to be the first to do whatever, always trying to steal the scene. And I like I I specifically remember like he, he would say like I kick in the door door and I run in first like like every single time like and you could start seeing on the other players' faces that they were getting a little upset a little annoyed um but a lot of these are like new players that aren't super familiar with the game this kid had played the game before he was a little older he was like maybe fourteen like he was either in eighth grade or ninth grade like that was the age I would put him in. Um, and I'm a, I'm a teacher of, of, uh, at the time, actually, I, I was teaching eighth grade at the time. So like, I knew this age group and, uh, I was looking around at my players and my GMing philosophy before then has always been like, let the players do what they want. It's kind of about them, especially in the adventures league. Like you're just trying to make them have a good time. And I kind of like didn't know how to handle this kid. And he also started like, as the game went on, he was also starting to like boss around the other people and tell them what to do on their table because he was the oldest kid in the table. And I don't know, at some point I was like, this is not going to be fun for everybody. I want people to keep coming back to my game. And as much as I want this kid to also come back to my game, he can't be ruining this for everybody else. So I turned on my teacher voice and I looked him dead in the eye and I said, you're not the boss. Stop. And this child was so cowed and immediately like the behavior was like so much more because I told him no. And like that stopped his reign of terror in my game. And the power of no is so important for you to wield. If you are a game master at the game, especially at a convention game or at a friend, at like a local game store game, you might be the only person who uh, actually has the social power to say no in the moment to a player who is going to be that guy. And, uh, and that can save the game for everybody, including the player who's being kind of an a-hole. Um, whether they know they're being an a-hole or not, they need to be told that they're being an a-hole and that they're not the boss. And that's my little story. <laughs> also, I got to use my teacher voice. So it was fun. That's a tricky one to learn. Uh, <laughs> uh, oh, wait. I'm... Yeah. And I, I'm the boss, actually. Yeah, yeah, it's like, like, you, you, you told me I'm the boss and yeah. now I'm the boss. So stop. <laughs> And by playing this game, you have all agreed. Yeah, it's a game master, <laughs> not game minion. So. Yeah. Oh. yeah. <laughs> Note to self, next game, the GM is called game minion. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, my story is actually also from the sort of early days of D&D Adventurers League. It is a lesson I learned about... Um, playing 
to the strengths of the group you're playing with and making sure that like they stay engaged. Fifth edition had just come out. People were still kind of figuring out the system. And I was running Lost Mine of Fandelver because the starter set was one of the only adventure published adventures out at the time. Uh, and it was Adventurers League, so we did kind of have a rotating table every week. I, I don't know if we were supposed to do that, but like it was the early days of Adventurers League too. So, oh well. Um, but we did have a few regulars. And uh, one of them showed up on the very first session and was like, all right, uh, I've, I've got a paladin with the highest possible armor class you can get at first level. And I can cast Shield of Faith and I can make it even higher. Uh, so we're good to go. These goblins, they can only touch me on like a 19 or 20. <laughs> and they get into a fight with the goblins, inevitably. And I have one of the goblins, and, and this paladin unintentionally places his character next to a ledge. And so I have one goblin take the help action, and another goblin take the shove action with advantage from the help action and push the paladin off the ledge. And he goes and takes a bunch of fall damage and it doesn't matter what his armor class is. <laughs> and the player sits back with this big old grin on his face like, oh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> because you know, the, the lesson I learned from that, I guess was um, you know, different groups, you know, there are all of the encounter balance stuff and all of those rules and they're all varying degrees of useful. But ultimately, Ultimately, one of the biggest factors is the experience or the experience level of the players you're playing with. And what was really exciting for me about that game was it's okay, I know the system inside out. They know the system inside out. They're looking for a challenge. I can take the gloves off. And uh that for me was the most fun part about Adventurers League, especially running like the higher level tables. It's like, this is organized play. I'm going to make them earn this stuff. <laughs> um, you know, they, they get to take this loot to another table. So I'm going to make them work for it. Um, and they had a great time because the game was challenging for them. Uh, but at the same time, a lot of times I was also running games for total beginners. And as the human GM, uh, I was able to, you know, sort of softball their characters while also, you know, drilling down on the experienced ones. So yeah, just the whole lesson I learned from the first few years of running Adventurers League was how to really tailor games towards the experience of individual players at the table. And that for me was like a really valuable lesson. Yeah, I love that. I, that's a good I, one i i love that i love that they were happy that you pushed them off the ledge yeah that that could go wrong with the wrong player mm -hmm. but it sounds like you read this you read the room correctly right <laughs> i love I, mean, I love that you refer to yourself as the human gm which is exactly the sort of thing that a robot or ai would say when they're trying to convince the people <laughs> on the podcast with them that they are in fact a human right or a, or a lizard person in human <laughs> oh no <laughs> As as is the totally human thing to do. I would I wanted to point that out. Oh yes. <laughs> <laughs> I I I think that there's a common thread in those three stories. It's that like you do have to know your players and mm -hmm. you have to wield your power responsibly. 
because wielding your power responsibly makes the game more fun for everybody. Um, yeah. Th- yeah, this is this has been a lot of fun. I know we talked a lot about video games today, uh, and I that's a rarity. And uh, I'm glad that we kind of messed with the format of our podcast for today. Ben, thank you so much for coming out. Yeah, thanks for having me. If you want to talk more about video games, I'll be around. <laughs> <laughs> um, and where can people find you if they want to message you about video so, games or check uh, out your games? That is a good question. The best place to find my games is going to be itch. It's going to be a itch. One minute, I'm pulling it up. Uh, if you look up my name, Ben Sandfelder, or Games, comma Inc. I N K, uh, that'll that should be able to find me. Uh, I also just finally made it to Blue Sky, and I have promptly forgotten that I'm on Blue Sky. <laughs> so um, if you look for Ben Sandfelder on Blue Sky, I I think. My uh, handle there is the exact same as my Twitter handle, which was just my name. So yeah, you can find me there. And if the people are messaging me, then I'm more likely to use the tool and respond to them and everything. So <laughs> that's where you can find me. You can find me uh, at at Joska on various social medias, whichever one I probably am on there as at Joska. I'm not on Instagram at at Joska because someone took my name. Um but everywhere else is pretty much it. You can also find my games at wannabegames.com or on itch or drive through RPG at wannabegames. And uh, I am at Nerdburger Craig on all those socials, um, including the Blue Sky uh, and Dice Camp at Mastodon. And uh, the game company uh, website is nerdburgergames.com. You can find the games at drive through RPG. However, um, if you're looking for uh, any of the Capers stuff and you plan to back Capers Cyberpunk anyway, everything Capers is listed um, as add-ons, um, PDFs, books, all that stuff. Um, so check that out anyway, uh, 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 regardless. Um, and in particular, if you're planning to get Capers stuff too, if, if you know, and if you don't mind waiting a little bit, because you know, ultimately got to run the campaign and fulfill it all. So that's that. Uh, thank you to our opening and closing theme song, which is Avel by Steph Sachs, licensed under Creative Commons. Thank you, Steph Sachs. And thank all of you for listening, and we'll see you back here next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.